Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Boris Karpa with New Books and Military History, and we have with us Lieutenant Colonel John Gazelli, who is with the United States Army Cyber Command, and he has written a book on an unusual topic and an unusual person. Uh, it's a biography of, uh, it's titled Lieutenant General Sir Frederick Morgan, KCB, the planner who saved Europe. Um, and of course, uh, it will become uh, it will become uh, apparent, some of the things which I ask will become apparent soon. But first of all, I'm, uh, I'm happy to have you with us, uh, Colonel Gazelli. Thank you, I'm glad to be here too. And my first question is almost self-evident, but I'm going to ask it uh, just for the benefit of our listeners. Why did you choose this particular topic? Well, so the book is based off uh, my master's thesis that I did about two years ago. And it was not my original topic for my thesis. When I was going through my master's program, I had, I've always had a fascination with Operation Overlord, but my fascination was more on the intelligence side and primarily the uh, Operation Fortitude, the deception plan for Overlord. That always caught my interest. And then I was, while going through my entire master's program, I had a topic in mind, which was uh, how did intelligence impact and contribute to the success of Overlord? primarily looking at the intelligence side and, and the planning for Overlord. So that I had pretty much set on that going into my thesis preparation class where I had to write the official proposal. And I wrote the official proposal and my thesis advisor uh, was underwhelmed to say the least, that it was a topic that he basically answered with, yes, it, it contributed. There's, not much new information here. So I had about three months between the end of my proposal to the start of the actual thesis writing program. And in that three months, I just kind of rethought about the topic and I kept coming back to Morgan. And I was looking at Morgan, how he utilized the intelligence planning. But then I really changed my focus to realize that Morgan didn't do a lot in the short time he had to uh, make it a successful operation. But when I go to research for Morgan, at the time, the only two book-length topics on Morgan were books he wrote about himself. One specifically on Overlord, and the other was his you know, general service memoir. And the more research I did on Morgan, the more I realized that uh, his contributions were overlooked for the success of Overlord. Uh, I think general his uh, general audience would think, when they think Overlord, they think Eisenhower, Monk, I mean, the biggest figures of World War II. And the, the assumption, and a lot of 
general histories kind of imply there was a planning prior to Eisenhower and Montgomery showing up, but the real planning was done when Eisenhower became Supreme Commander and Montgomery took over the land campaign for the official plan. But the periods from uh, the spring of 1943 up until December when Eisenhower was named, Morgan took a plan that had nothing and in a very short time, one, made it viable, proved there was a viable plan, two, began the execution of the plan, and three, the plan that actually became Overlord was really Morgan's actual plan. It just additional resources were provided to it. And that's why I looked, I felt at that topic on Morgan and tried to do him some justice by bringing out his contributions to the war effort. Which brings me to now. I understand that uh, you have a, a deep understanding of uh, Morgan's role, and um, I have some understanding because I've read your book, and um, I understand what a planning officer does. But um, uh, you are—you uh, have a master's degree, and you are a military professional. I've served in the armed forces, and I, and I am a military historian. Because it's not straightforward, uh, not completely straightforward. Can you explain, uh, for the benefit of our audience, maybe, what a planning officer is, what their duties are? So, a planning officer in the military um, is not a. For some, it's not a specialty. It's an additional duty. It's a. It is part of your natural progression in the ranks, you become, you work on a staff and all staff officers are planners. And Morgan was the head of a staff, uh, which was entitled the chief of staff to the Supreme Allied commander designate. That was his title and it was shortened to Cossack. So his, so when you say Cossack, it covers his entire planners and their job was to devise a plan with the guidance they received from the British and American leadership was, how would an invasion of Northern France work? And to be a successful planner, you have to know your resources, know the enemy, know the terrain, and know how to do what you want to accomplish in the time you're given. And planners, a lot of them spend most of their time thinking about those concepts and they try to understand what am I supposed to do and how am I supposed to get to the objective I've been given, which was uh, return of forces to Europe uh, from England. So it goes much beyond what we normally imagine when we think about military strategies. This is really a, forming a detailed plan, putting flesh, so to speak, on the bones. Yes. Yeah, the strategy was the defeat of Germany, and Morgan was given the task, how do you defeat a Germany by going through northern France and how to make that successful? And through iterations of his own planning, uh, he came up with a plan that was accepted by the Allied leadership. 
Okay, and uh, one thing which struck me when I was reading this book is that clearly this was uh, quite a task. All books are, I've, I've written several books, <laughs> I've sp spoken to several writers. I understand that you're always writing a book is a journey and a task. So I'd like to know, can you tell us, you know, many of our readers are also writers, also maybe working on books on their own, and so it might be very educational if you said, what are the difficulties which you personally faced when you wrote the book? And of course, you've overcome these difficulties. We have a book now, so how did you overcome these difficulties? So the, the first challenge was, uh, since I'm writing about a British general, and there's not much secondary source information on this British general. I had to find primary source material. And where I was at the time I wrote this, I was living in Virginia. So I was pretty near within driving distance of the uh, United States National Archives, which had all the papers of Cossack there. Uh, and plus had additional papers of the Joint Chiefs, American Joint Chiefs of Staff, as well as uh, uh, Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force papers that was the follow-on for Cossack, which was the follow-on headquarters. So I was lucky to go, I was able to drive there to get those documents. Um, now, I am pretty good at searching the internet. Uh, I think that's one of my innate skills. So I was able to, by going online, I was able to discover additional things. So Morgan did not keep like his own personal correspondence or, or papers for himself. However, he did have a diary he wrote when he went, he visited the United States in, 19, in the fall of 1943. And it was 45 days, but his diary, I, w I managed to find online uh, the actual just a diary title, but uh, I did reach out to that particular organization that housed it and got a copy of it. And through further researching online, I was able to discover that the British Chief of Staff's papers for World War II were all digitized by the United Kingdom National Archives. So I was able to get access to all those paperwork where all the correspondence, memorandums, discussions from the British Chief of Staff's perspective was available. Uh, additional research, I have books at home here that I used. Uh, I have the, uh, what the Army calls the Green Books, which are the U.S. Army World War II series. So I have the, that complete set. And I was able to build out my, uh, uh, they're called the Churchill Documents, and they're edited by Martin Gilbert. And they have every, every correspondence of Churchill's life, but I have all the volumes that cover his entire period of World War II. And much like other self-authors, uh, uh, self I have actual, uh, an organization printed out all the copies of the uh, Allied conferences that happened in World War II, all the documents, the memorandums, the, the transcripts of meetings. So I was able to leverage all that primary source information and then a further uh, analysis, uh, further research in the internet. I got oral histories uh, from the Eisenhower Museum uh, Library. Got copies of those, primarily of uh, General Baker, who was Morgan's deputy. And so my challenge was, for the lack of secondary source material, 
I benefited Grady for a great amount of primary source materials and archival materials, uh, which enabled me to come to my own conclusion about Morgan's role just by looking at the primary sources. And, and to me, when I do history and I, I like to study history, I often like to really study history from the perspective of the primary source material. You, you can't get a knowledge like, for instance, uh, there's the big discussion about whether the Eisenhower should have gone to Berlin or not. And a lot of the histories you read is uh, like hindsight history. And I'm, I'm not really enamored with hindsight history because you don't get the, the thought process of the individual until you read what he was writing at the time he made that decision. So you get a better understanding of what the pressures were, what the the decisions being made in a near real-time experience. So a lot of most of the book I wrote is really Morgan in real time, what he faced and what he had to deal with leading up to Overlord. Thank you for uh, for this uh, really detailed answer and it, it it's really um, like in terms of the work it's really a lot of work which you have done and I've uh, I've of course written my own PhD dissertation so I I can empathize with a lot of the hard work which you had to do and but I I'd like to you know, you've talked about a bit about the stuff which uh, um, the difficulties which Morgan had to deal with and. Um, the next question is, you know, I I was struck, you know, in in reading your in in reading your books, as the plans were being made out, there was lots of planning diplomacy, if you will, between the United States and Britain about about how at first about whether or not there would be a landing in Europe at all, then whether or not it would be accompanied by operations in the Mediterranean. And I struck, I'm struck by the fact that um, Britain was actually, despite the fact that Britain didn't have, you know, Britain was relying constantly on American help, it was still had a lot of influence on the outcome of many of these discussions. And um, what's your what's your view? Americans seem to be deferring to the British on a lot of things. Not all of them, by by all means, but often. At least that's my understanding. And is this because they've just felt that, uh, well, they've needed the British? Or is it it because they deferred to their greater knowledge? Because, after all, they are in Europe, basically. They probably know more about events there. Or is it just some kind of mutual allied respect which is happening? So I think the factor is, and you have to really look at this at the British mindset. The Americans, when they entered the war in December of 41, um, their whole goal was, and the overarching Allied strategy was Germany first, and defeat Germany and then go after Japan. To the Americans, to defeat Germany meant you had to go at the heart of Germany. And the only way to go at the heart of Germany was to invade northern France, or some portions thereof, and strike at Berlin. So from 42 to 43, it's really, I would say, in till August of 43, that entire time period, the British really had sway over the strategy of what was to be accomplished because, one, the Americans could not build up a force fast enough in, Europe, in England 
to compensate for the fact that the actual invasion will be done, the bulk of it will be done by British troops. And the British were not enamored at the time of having to acquiesce to an American strategy of an early invasion of Europe where the most of the casualties would be British soldiers and not Americans. And the British were already heavily engaged in North Africa, defending uh, access to the Suez Canal and dealing with Rommel and the Africa Corps, that the British did not want to take their eye off the fact that they are actively fighting in the Mediterranean while waiting for the Americans to build up their forces in England. And any, any invasion in 42 would probably have been 80% British troops going in with minimal American support. And the British, I think, played it pretty good in 42 and 43. They never outright opposed uh, overlord. They always accepted the fact that, yes, the overall strategy is to defeat Germany, and to defeat Germany, you had to invade northern France. But the British was good at saying, yes, we agree to overlord, but we're fighting other places that we need immediate help for, which was North Africa. And... The British held that basically unified approach all the way up to August of 43 until the Quebec conference. Um, and up until that time, and the Americans, uh, General Marshall was the lead advocate for the early invasion. Uh, no matter how hard he pushed the British, they would never commit to a state specific for overlord. Uh, they kept saying resources, uh, lack of resources. We don't have an overall commander even though at the time, from 42 to 43, it was generally accepted that the commander would be a British general. Uh, and the British were also able to divide uh, U.S. strategic leadership on the actual, on what operations should be done immediately. Uh, Marshall pushed for a uh, buildup of forces in, your, in England to prepare for an invasion, and Churchill and the British generals were able to convince uh, President Roosevelt, that you had to do something and something immediately and something had to, you know, show investment for U.S. coming into war. And that's how they got Operation Torch, the invasion of North Africa, uh, presented uh, and approved by the combined chiefs. So from 42 to 43, the British really had control over overall strategic thinking so long as they provided the preponderance of forces for overlord. In beginning of 43, as the Americans are building up forces, uh, that dynamic shifted, where now the Americans would provide the predominance of ground force invasion, that they were able to start to dictate that the operations in the Mediterranean had to be secondary to overlord. And of course, once it's, uh, not to be crude about this, but obviously once it's mostly other people doing the fighting and dying, you, the British have less of, uh, you know, an interest in, uh, in holding back the invasion. Uh, it's it, it's a, a little hard interpretation of uh, the British way of war. No, I don't think, I think it's, uh, the British had, I also think it is a, I wouldn't say a complete uh, concern about the casualties they suffered in World War One, 
The British did not have the manpower pool that the Americans had and was able to replace losses at the rate the Americans could replace losses. I'm not trying to be dismissive of anything which the British did or you know, the great heroism of British troops, but um, I think it was a little hard for first to argue that one of the problems with British involvement in the First World War was that um, traditionally, he said, the British way of war is to limit our ground deployment and to try and use um, diplomacy to get our allies to help out as much as they can in that department. um, I, I'm, I'm not trying to say anything about the British, which British doctrine did not itself say. Yeah, no, I agree. And it, it is a really, and the British also had a strategy that uh, to fight around the hard points and go for the weak spots. And to the British mind, the Germany's weak spot was the Mediterranean. You know, Churchill called Italy the soft underbelly of Europe. And if you want to tie down forces or defeat forces, you, you strike at the weak points. Which brings me to the next question, sort of. Of course, the book is concerned about Morgan's actions as, as Kozak, the chief of staff to the Supreme Allied Commander. And uh, to some extent, also to the staff which Morgan had employed, assisting him in the planning tasks, helping him uh, plan for Overlord. But could you explain to us a, a bit more about the duties of the staff, the sort of sta- tasks which they had to undertake uh, so that, uh, to, to create the plan? I think you've touched on this a bit, but I think it would be useful if we spoke more about it. Okay. Okay, so after the Casablanca conferences, after North, uh, the North African invasions, uh, the Allies had another conference in Casablanca. And again, the discussion was follow-on operations. And it was there that the British agreed that, yes, uh, you know, uh, an invasion of northern France is a priority for the Allies while operations are still ongoing in the Mediterranean. But the, the challenge was you can't say hey, northern, north, uh, northern France is our target area, but we're not. no one's there to plan for it. So they had to come to an agreement, and the creation of the Cossack staff came out of that conference, and then they had to find a general to lead it. Now, the, the mindset it was a British commander who was going to command the invasion force meant uh, to keep with the cultural understanding and norms, his chief of staff had to be a British general as well. So, uh, and at the time, Morgan was a, in, in England as a corps commander. He commanded 1st British Corps. Uh, and a quick history about Morgan was he fought in uh, World War I, a lot of it liaison with other Allied forces, Canadian forces. And then he worked in the British Indian Army uh, during between the wars. And then he commanded a, a uh, couple divi- he commanded a I can't remember what he was. he was one of the deputy division commanders for the uh, in northern France in 1940 and it had, had some of the homeland defense divisions and then moved up the first corps command uh, 
So he has, Morgan has a background history of working with allies. So he's comfortable working with uh, other nations, militaries. And at the time when North Africa was being invaded, he was actually directed to play an an amphibious operation of his corps to protect the Straits of Gibraltar. So he has some understanding of how to conduct amphibious planning and amphibious operations. And by the time he was chosen by uh, General Allenbrook, who was the British chief of the Imperial General Staff, he, um, his, all the divisions under his corps were, were deployed out. So all he was in charge of was his corps headquarters. So not much of a disruption if he left the, the corps headquarters. So he was given a, after the uh, Casablanca conferences in North Africa, he was designated as Cossack. And the interesting point was, while the British said, you're in charge, this is your planning criteria, his meetings with uh, General Allenbrook kind of laid the foundation further on of how his relationship with his fellow British generals uh, deteriorated. When Allenbrook, in a sense, said, you're in charge of this plan and it won't work, but you better make it work. Okay, so I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to, um, uh, how should I say this, uh, focus us a bit. Um, can you tell us a, a bit about the kind of work, the kind of stuff which goes into planning for an uh, amphibious invasion or any kind of invasion? Because the book mentions that as, as they had to figure out which specific divisions they would use, they had to have... Um, I think they had to have even uh, um, oceanograph- oceanographic data in place. So can you tell us a bit about the different threads which go into the tapestry of, an, of a big invasion like this? So uh, there's a couple factors when you look at a plan. You look at the intelligence aspect, and uh, one for the intelligence is determining what enemy forces are you going to face. Uh, it's called order of battle. And you do an analysis of what is the capabilities of your enemy, specifically what German divisions are in the in potential invasion areas. What are their conditions as, uh, are they static forces? Are they panzer divisions? Uh, or what's their capabilities? Is there an assessment of, uh, can they maneuver? Do they have enough firepower to hold back an invasion? So, And then you look at the terrain and then, from a planning perspective, and it really came down to, for Morgan, he the belief it was going to be along the coastline of, of France. That's where the invasion was going to happen. So you had to make an analysis of the terrain, which areas were suitable for a sufficient-sized force to get onto the beaches and then expand the beachhead. And there were two areas uh, that Morgan looked at, the Pas-de-Calais, and Normandy. And what he did was he had his planners. Uh, at the time when he had his staff, he, did, he was very adamant that there would be no specific American staff uh, or no British staff. It was a Allied staff. If it was a British general in charge of a specific section, then there was always going to be an American deputy under him and then vice versa. He wanted a true Allied effort. But when he came down to the analysis of the actual land which are the two beaches to check from, he kind of made it a competition. He had Americans look at Normandy and the British look at the Pas-de-Calais to determine which one is the viable beach. They both had pros and cons. And 
when you're doing staff planning, you, you're, you're as a staff officer, as a staff planner, you're not the one making a decision, but you have to provide. It's the commander who makes the decision. So you have to provide all the necessary information of logistics, which which invasion is logistically possible, which area to invade has uh, less capable enemy forces to stop, which terrain is more suitable for the invasion. And then you present these positions, pros and cons. Sometimes you do make a recommendation, or sometimes you just leave it to the commander to say, I choose this. So Morgan was presented both with both options, and Morgan decided Normandy was the more viable uh, assault area for the Allies. Now, he did not neglect the Pas de Calais because he realized that uh, a viable deception plan would tie down German forces. And again, that would lead me back to the my original topic view was I was always interested in how Allied deceptions kept an entire German army pinned down at the Pas de Calais, even while the Allies were advancing through Normandy. Which brings me to a very a, a something which perplexed me a bit um, when reading your book. Um, well, for several months, uh, uh, Lieutenant General Morgan was used uh, used the phrase "Supreme Allied Commander" in all but name, and so he he held uh, immense responsibility and an immense influence, and yet. Uh, and yet, uh, his role is, uh, uh, he, he almost vanishes from, you, you, you rarely even see him mentioned in the books on the topic. Certainly, I've, you know, all of these mass market documentaries, which we see on, on uh, Overlord, I've rarely heard his name. And clearly not as famous as he deserves to be. I've I've seen that there are I've found uh, your book about him and another book which is published I think a, a, two years after yours a year after yours, and um, but clearly not Morgan not as famous as he clearly deserves to be, and um, your book provides some of the answer where you say that uh, Montgomery s- stole some of his glory so to speak, but um, I'd like you to tell us more about first of all. Uh, what happened, and second, how it happened, because it strikes me as a bit unusual that in a country like Britain, which has, as you know, all these press institutions, and it's not the Soviet Union where you can hide a person from history, and, uh, and and yet we have this person who, you know, died died alone and almost entirely forgotten, despite his many achievements and uh, clearly his great, great contribution. And so I'd like you to tell us more about uh, why and how this happened. So I would say, and I'm going to be kind of cautious, from what I read and 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 my, my pondering on this, I think the one thing that really impacted Morgan's failure to be captured in history was that his relationship with his British superiors broke down, that he was seen as an American. He was, he, he was 
perceived to be disloyal to the British Army, and I see that someone say he's oh, he's gone to the Yankees. Um, and what you have is when when Cossack became Shaif, the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force, with Eisenhower and Montgomery there. All through 1943, it was just Morgan. And when he became, as I said, the Supreme Allied Commander in name only, this was only after the Combined Chiefs of Half Staff approved Morgan's plan for overboard, based off what resources he was allocated at the time. This was, And sometimes when you do planning, you do the constraint, resources, or unconstrained. If you had everything in the world, what would you do? Morgan based his plan off what he had available and what he could do with what he had available. So his initial plan was only three divisions hitting the beaches on the first day with two divisions following up. Uh, Originally it was supposed to be uh, two airborne divisions landing on either flank of the invasion force. And that, but that cut back to about a division minus to cover the entire front. So Morgan plans uh, what he had with resources available, even though it was completely recognized by all the senior leaders, even himself included, that the invasion force was insufficient and needed to be plussed up. I think uh, at the Quebec conference, Churchill mentioned he needed to add 25% additional forces to the invasion to the assault force. Some even argued about four and a half divisions hitting the beaches, and Morgan was in complete unison with all that. Uh, to get back to that point, so when December comes around and Eisenhower is appointed uh, Supreme Allied Commander, and Montgomery is made the commander of the actual operation that was going to lead the assault operations, he already replaced a British general who was working with Morgan at 21st British Army Group. Uh, and when Montgomery looked at the plan, he his opinion of the plan is probably what solidified in historians' minds about that period. Uh, Montgomery, to say the least, was not impressed with what Cossack had to provide because of the resourcing constraints. And he said he can't do it with this force. And he recommended... Uh, that the actual invasion force needed to be plussed up, additional airborne forces needed to be added, uh, and a wider front needed to be main, needed to be launched. So when Montgomery makes all these points, I think this is when historians capture, well, since Montgomery wasn't happy with the plan, and he, for some people, make the assumption that Montgomery wrote the Operation Overlord plan, it kind of makes the... Cossack period looked like nothing happened. And uh, Morgan lost favor with Allen Brook and Montgomery. Montgomery called him disloyal uh, to Allen Brook. And then Morgan at the time, when Schaaf was in full operations, he became a deputy chief of staff. He lost his actual chief of staff position since it was going to be an American general. They now needed an American general as the chief of staff. So he became a deputy chief of staff. General Smith, who was going to be, who became the new Cossack, but uh, for Eisenhower. So Morgan 
all through the period of when Shafe was in charge, really lost his ability to influence the overlord plan and put his stamp on it. He provided the plan to Eisenhower and Montgomery, and they, some would say, rewrote the plan, but the way I look at it and the way I see how the invasion occurred compared to what he offered, it was just the Cossack plan resource unconstrained. And and that's, I think, when you think of Morgan's time period, uh, his contributions get lost in what the attitude of the uh, Supreme Headquarters, uh, Eisenhower and Mar- Montgomery had towards the initial plan. But Morgan was fighting a, a resourcing battle with the Mediterranean theater all through 1943, which I find intriguing that when you look at the struggles he had to get resources every time the, the combined chief said that uh, Overlord was to have the primary resources, the Mediterranean theaters always found a way to mi- siphon off resources. And, and I find it fascinating that the, the person that Morgan struggled in losing resources to was General Eisenhower, who was throughout 43 in charge of the Mediterranean, just for when he comes to become the supreme commander for the invasion, he realizes that he doesn't have resources to do what he was instructed to do by the uh, combined chiefs, which was the invasion of northern France, because all the resources got diverted to his previous theater. But um, in your book, I read that Eisenhower, unlike Montgomery, had a full recognition of... Um, he had a deep respect for Morgan and what he had done for uh, for the plan. He did yes, not he did. have uh, the, uh, he did not have the idea that this is a bad plan because it has does not have enough resources. He had a deep respect for Morgan. He did, and even at the invasion point, he congratulated Morgan because this was your plan. And Morgan said uh, to the effect, "No, this is yours," uh, and it, it was only accomplished because you're here. Because Morgan, of all things, even though he was doing everything without a Supreme Commander. He desperately needed a Supreme Commander appointed because he realized that even though he was a senior general directing the primary plan for Europe, uh, he did not have the authority that a Supreme Commander would have. And so from 43, he made multiple appeals to the British Chiefs of Staff to get a Supreme Commander appointed. And even in uh, the Quebec conference, when uh, Roosevelt finally agreed, yes, it will be an American general, uh, with the assumption that it would be General Marshall, uh, Morgan was very happy. But when Morgan went to Washington to meet with General Marshall, Marshall also implied that maybe it wasn't going to be him as the Supreme Commander. So I would say Morgan was for all his time planning Overlord, desperately needing that Supreme Commander to provide him backup. And so, and after uh, after the war ends, the official histories, if you will, the official portrayal basically takes up Montgomery's angle. Yes, it does. Um, I think it's just a personal animosity that the British military establishment had towards Montgomery, the senior British leaders. Towards and, and Morgan, you mean? To Mor- yes, to Morgan, I'm sorry. Morgan, because uh, even after the war, 
when he did at time supporting uh, United Nations relief operations in, in Germany, came back. Uh, Montgomery was the chief of the Imperial General Staff, and Morgan, there was no assignment available to Morgan. So Morgan retired from service in 46. And I don't think he was very assuming because his books were very, you know, sometimes when you write memoirs, you're, you're settling a score. But uh, Morgan's books do not settle any score. It was a lot of, if it was a critique, it was, hey, because I didn't have the resources available, but it was not a, I blame you for this or that, that some memoirs do after the fact. And he was just a voice that got lost in the British official histories. I mean, American history was just more focused on the American view and while the Americans had a high opinion of Morgan, it did not translate into giving him the bulk of the uh, acknowledgement for the overlord plan. Which brings me to um, there's a question which we always ask on this podcast. Um, you know, it's tradition. It's a tradition. Um, can you tell us, you know, it's a, after all, it's a show about books, you know, for readers, for writers, but especially for readers. Can you tell us about your own book journey, about the books which you are reading right now? Maybe there are some books which you would like to also recommend to our listeners. So I have a wide variety in history. I like different eras of history. I like uh, ancient history. Um modern history, political, military. I like British politics. Any book about Benjamin Disraeli, I always find interesting and fascinating. I have the seven volume set that Money Penny did on uh, uh, Benjamin Disraeli. I always found him to be a very fascinating political figure and historical figure that I don't think he gets the credit for how great he was for British politics. Um, I have several books from Jeremy Black. Uh, I find Armored Warfare uh, very interesting. Uh, his uh, book, uh, The History of the Tank, and his Global History of Strategy. I have those books. I would also recommend, if you really want to have a good understanding of World War II and the Blitzkrieg, uh, any book by J.F.C. Fuller. Uh, his armored warfare books, his uh, tanks in the Great War, uh, um, the three-volume military history of the Western world are great books to get a full understanding of history from a very preeminent uh, military historian. And then I, I have a lot of the encyclopedias that I like, short to the point uh, information, American history. I have uh, uh, the Charles Scribner's entire collection of uh, European encyclopedia European history from ancient times to the present. And uh, any of the official histories of World War II, I, I seek out and get. The Green Book, the U.S. Army War II series is a good collection, as well as the British Grand Strategy and some of their actual operational histories of the war. Well, thank you for being with us today. It was a pleasure being here.